Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers from around the world. I hope everyone is doing well this evening, this morning, depending where in the world you're located. If you are joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. And also you can find us on any of our five simultaneously streaming networks, which include YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter under the name Dead Talk Live. And if you're on YouTube right now, if you guys hit the thumbs up button on this broadcast, it would be greatly appreciated. Want to welcome all of our regulars, of course, our moderators, Khaleesi, Singerchick, Saz is moderating. On the Instagram side, we have Marie, who's moderating. Let me say hello to our Instagram peeps first today. Welcome to Mary61Mom. How you doing, Mary? Welcome. Jamie is joining us. Shima is joining us. Sabhay is with us saying hello. Hello to everyone. Uh, 14 Alvarado is with us as well. On the YouTube side, we have Sedge MF with us on Facebook. Lisa Collette Lizzie Monk is with us on Facebook as well. Welcome to Lizzie. Uh, Cece Weezy is also with us. So welcome, welcome. Uh, I hope everyone is doing well. Like I said, it is Thursday evening here. What's today's date? Uh, it's Thursday, January 28th. We are almost done with the month of January. You know what that means for here in the U.S. for all the adults? It's tax season. It's officially tax season. I, it's, yeah, it's tax season. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, so let's just get started with the news and not get into taxes. Uh, what we have first on the schedule for you today, Stephen Yen did an interview on leaving The Walking Dead and how he basically explained that there wasn't much of a fight on his end about them writing him off the show. Uh, I don't really know if he had much, you know, if he did put up a fight, how much of a say he would have had. Uh, I'm sure he, over the years, six plus seasons on the show, he had a little bit of pull, you know what I mean? And he was a huge fan favorite. But anyway, during their conversation, this is from Variety Magazine, by the way. During their conversation for Variety's Actors on Actors series, presented by Amazon, Stephen Yen and Riz Ahmed talked intensely about such topics as the immigrant experience, as reflected in his movie Minari, how Ahmed learned sign language for Sound of Metal, and the idea of code switching, how as actors of Asian descent, they've been subjected to prejudice, both in the larger world and in the entertainment industry. It helps you to survive, Ahmed said, of code switching. I have no idea what code switching is. If anybody knows what code switching is, please fill me in. It helps you become an actor with the tremendous range that you have because you have to be the Korean version of yourself for home and the American version of yourself for high school. Ahmed asked how Yuan's experience on the hugely successful horror drama The Walking Dead factored in the discussion to which Yen replied, Dude, 
Thanks for asking me this. Yen called his character, the fan favorite Glenn Ree, a plucky, nice guy, nice to everybody. He said, that is me. And that is not a thing I am ashamed of. It's just, I'm more than that. I think that over the course of the journey, I try to expand. And I think Glenn grew to an extent alongside me. I don't think any of us can argue with that. But then there was a point in which I realized that he almost became a ceiling because I became an idea over a human character. Hmm. Yen continued, then he was more asked to service as the more to service as the moral compass for the show, and that's cool. A show needs that. I was happy to service that. Yen was on The Walking Dead for its first six seasons. Glenn was killed brutally by the villainous Negan in the premiere of season seven, and Yen was okay with it. There wasn't really much of a fight on my end, he said, but it wasn't easy. It was still sad, he said, especially because it was such a beautiful time on that show. But I couldn't be stopped there, Yan said. I couldn't be stuck servicing just a genial-natured guy for the rest of my career. On the inside, I didn't feel that way. On the inside, I can be angry, I can be vengeful, I can be all the other things, and I wanted to explore those things for myself. And that is perfect. I love that. I love what he had to say about his whole experience. And in my reading that, to summarize it, he wanted to explore different characters that he knows he is capable of portraying on the screen. So, yeah, we all miss Glenn. No doubt about it. We all miss Glenn. I miss him. But, you know, you got to understand, these. Uh, there are people behind these characters, real-life people. And if he felt that his time on The Walking Dead had, you know, maxed out to what his character is able to do and portray... Uh, I'm 100% behind him wanting to move on, uh, and not putting up much of a fight when, when he was told he was being written off the show to be free to go out and explore anything and everything that he wants to do as an actor. So I definitely applaud him for that. I'm just looking at your guys' chats as you guys are, are going here. Let me look on the Instagram King Cat is with us, giving us a thumbs up. Welcome, King Cat. So, let's get on to some different stuff here. Uh, let's see. Let's see where, where we should go next. The 15 horror movies that will scare you mad. Maybe we'll come back to that. Uh, Ethan Hawke's horror thriller, The Black Phone, will film in Wilmington next month. And the reason why I'm bringing this article up, uh, because it... it directly goes with what I've been saying over the last several weeks on how the movie-slash-TV industry is filming in a lot of places and never used to film in before. And I mentioned one of those places was Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, Halloween Kills was filmed in Wilmington. 
And it seems that a lot more films are going to be filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, it looks like Wilmington is going to become the new Atlanta. And what The Walking Dead did for the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia. Uh, Khaleesi writes, one thing I do know, that Asian actors, there was two that left Hawaii Five O because they weren't paying them like they were everybody else. It's sad. It's sad, but it happens. There's inequities, and whether it's done consciously or subconsciously, we have to be aware of them or else it's never going to stop. Uh... People should not be getting paid according to their gender, ethnicity, nationality, whatever. Uh, you should be getting paid for the job that you're doing, regardless of what your background is and uh, if you're a man or a woman. So, welcome to Jing Tapala, who's with, who's with us on Facebook, just joined us. Uh, let's see, Wilmington, North Carolina. We don't answer the phone. The next horror movie... To dial up, Wilmington will star Ethan Hawke and begin production in February. According to a news release from Blumhouse Productions, Hawke has joined the cast of The Black Phone and will reunite with director Scott Derrickson for the first time since the pair collaborated on the 2012 horror movie Sinister. Now, Ethan Hawke, here's his picture, he has been in movies for a long time. I don't know how many of you guys uh, saw Dead Poets Society. Uh, he was in that as a very young man. He was even in a lot of stuff well before Dead Poets Society. Uh, never really did much horror. His big jump into horror uh, has to be Sinister. And that was awesome. Sinister is an awesome movie. Uh, in fact, we read an article not too long ago that they did a study and Sinister, uh, they measured people's reactions to watching different horror movies and Sinister came out as number one as getting the biggest reaction scare from fans. So he was the star of the first Sinister, great movie. The sequel was pretty good as well, but that was his first jump. For me, one of his greatest uh, characters was in the movie a while ago called Alive that is based on a true story about an Argentinian uh, sports team whose plane crashed in the Andes Mountain. This is a famous story. It happened in the, the real life events happened in the 70s. They crashed in the Andes Mountains and... Uh, there was a search. The search was called off. They were still survivors. And the movie uh, highlights what those survivors had to go through. But the biggest hook, the biggest catch, is that the survivors, in order to survive, had to resort to eating the their loved ones that had passed away. And that movie calls on a big moral dilemma that people have to face. Here you have a group of survivors that are, you know, their plane went down on top of the Andes Mountains on their way to Chile for a sports match. Uh, both, the, there was a wide search. Of course, if you're 
on top of a snowy mountain and the color of the plane was white. That did not help either. Uh, they searched for many weeks. Finally, they called off the search. They were all presumed dead, but they weren't dead. Uh, uh, Colette wants to know, is it a remake? It's a very famous story. The movie is not a remake. It's just a very famous story, and I would not be surprised if you heard of it. Uh, so anyway, after they called off the search, they were there for like, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember exactly, but at least three months or more. And when the food ran out, they had to make a decision to whether or not to eat their past loved ones that died. Uh, and it was Ethan Hawke's character who led the argument for doing that. And he was very powerful in that. Finally, they knew that if they were going to get off that mountain, they had to do it themselves. So Ethan Hawke and another character who's the actor's name I don't remember right now, they walked all the way to Chile over the mountains and they made it to Chile and they brought back help to rescue the rest of the survivors. It's an absolutely 100% true story. And it's one of those movies. We're doing a show uh, either tomorrow or the day after uh, titled Based on True Events and how very loosely that is used in modern movies and TV shows today. But Alive is a movie that is very accurate to the actual real-life story that played out uh, in real life back in the 70s. So if you guys are looking for a great story, check out Alive. It, it has a great cast. Ethan Hawke is the star, along with a lot of other great actors. So it came out a while ago. It came out in the 90s, I want to say. It's been at least over 20 years, but it's a classic. All right, now, this is a review for the movie called The Medium. And we talked about this also in the past. And the review is not a good one. It's a messy horror game with inventive puzzles. Heavy with atmosphere, the title from Blobber Team has an intriguing premise, but execution is off. When The Medium was revealed last year, it looked like one of the more promising offerings on the Xbox Series X. Sorry, this is, I gotta mention, this is a game, okay? This is a game, uh, should have mentioned that up front. Uh, we'd like to mix things up and throw a little stuff in here about horror games. There's a big market out there for gamers out there who absolutely love horror games. The reveal had an inside evil vibe with the visuals were compelling enough to force me to, pa to pause and admire the work. After a short delay, the medium was finally released and it's different from what I was expecting. Instead of a tense and action-oriented affair, the project by Blobber Team was slow-paced and puzzle-centric. I was expecting a polished version of Silent Hill, but the medium is more akin to supermassive games, dark pictures, anthology. It's a narrative-driven game with an air of mystery as players find themselves controlling Marianne, 
the title character. She's the medium in question in dealing with the death of her adopted father. With the last thread of family gone, she feels unmoored with the supernatural power she's been dealing with all her life. And I got to tell you guys, I am not much of a gamer. I'm not. But uh, my the rest of my family is. I Has anyone out there played like a horror game? You know, it's the kind of games I assume where it's a storytelling game and you got to go and make decision from A and B. It's fascinating. God knows if I'll ever have the time to try one of these games out. Of course, I'm good. if I'm going to try any of them out, it's going to be a Walking Dead game. There's so many out there, and we did an episode a while back exclusively dedicated to the Walking Dead games. Uh, but it's something I would like to try. I just don't have the damn time. Uh, let's see. Uh, Edson is uh, with us on Facebook. Uh, sorry, on Instagram and is waving. Jai Saber joined us as well. Edson is from Brazil. So Brazil is in the house. Welcome to Brazil. Uh, let's see. You guys are talking about Resident Evil. Resident Evil has to be the most famous horror game that was turned into a movie. It's been done in other movies, as in other games as well. But Resident Evil has to be one of the most successful ones. Starring Mila Jovovich, who's an amazing actress. Uh, you know, she was, uh, she became that, that movie, those movies, because they made a lot of them, uh, really made a star out of Mila Jovovich. Okay. British director Prano Bailey Bond on psychological horror censor. Prano Bailey Bond psychological horror censor, which opens Sundance Midnight's. Oh, guess what? Speaking of Sundance, I don't know if you guys were watching or not. Uh, you know how I mentioned that the Sundance Film Festival this year is going to be virtual? And I'm like, you know, I'd like to be invited. Well, lo and behold, two days ago, I get an invitation to a screening of a particular movie at Sundance. I'm like, all right, that's pretty damn cool. Uh, I mean, it was, I was totally surprised. I just, my phone went off, actually it was my watch. I looked at the message and it says, you have been invited to a virtual screening at the Sundance Film Festival. I'm like, all right, that's kick ass. Anyway, I just, you know, when I read Sundance, it reminded me to mention that because I did make a point about it the other day. I'm like, how does somebody get an invitation to watch a film or a screening of something at this year's virtual Sundance Film Festival. Well, didn't take long. I got an invitation soon after. I don't know if somebody was watching that show that I, you know, talked about it or not, but I got my invitation and I know exactly now how it's done. Uh, anyway, uh, let's start over. It's a psychological horror sensor which opens at Sundance Midnight Section Thursday is a twisted, bloody love letter to the low-budget horror films of the 1980s. Variety spoke to the young British Helmer, who was recently named as one of Variety's 10 directors to watch. 
In Sansar, a young woman, who goes by the name of Enid, is seen at work as a film censor in Britain in the 1980s, a time when the growing popularity of VHS players had led to a boom in cheaply made horror films, which soon acquired the nickname Video Nasties in the tabloid press. Uh, That's definitely a British thing. After a gruesome killing, which the press claims was inspired by a horror film, Enid finds herself in the eye of a media storm as she had passed the film for distribution. Bailey Bond places the media's hysterical reaction to these video nasties against the backdrop of Margaret Thatcher's Britain, a time of social and political strife. You see the video nasties become the scapegoat for a lot of the problems going on in a society, welfare cuts, mass unemployment, and rising crime. What do you guys think of that? We, I know we have a lot of viewers from the UK uh, that watch this show. Uh, how many of you guys are old enough to remember Margaret Thatcher? I do. I like Margaret, you know? She was the prime minister of uh, the UK back for the majority of the 80s. And it's no different than what would happen here in that, that particular time. I terrible crime is committed and everyone is always looking for something to blame so of course you blame the movies uh, even though study after study has been done in the last 30 years especially involving violent video games and uh, the studies conclude they all come to the same conclusion kids who play violent video games does not lead to the kids becoming violent adults. It's just not proven. Now, it's a study, and you know there could be a study that comes out next month that totally contradicts that, but that's been proven. But anyway, this is the 80s. Uh, For those of you that didn't live the 80s, I was young in the 80s. I was born in 74, so I mean, I was a young kid throughout the entire 80s. The 90s was more my time. Enid, we discover, is still mourning the loss. Shut up, Siri. Enid, we discover, is still mourning the loss of her sister, who had disappeared in mysterious circumstances as a child. Enid, who had been with her at the time, recalls nothing but a dreamlike memory of a forest. She is convinced that her sibling is still alive. Her parents, on the other hand, want her to accept that her sister is dead. Meanwhile, Enid's work as a censor gives her the illusion that she can protect people from the violence in the world. It felt like a way into the video nasty world was through this family connection. The breakdown of the family unit fascinates me and reflects what goes on in society, Bailey Bond says. Enid's family haven't really dealt with the problems in their lives, They haven't spoken about them, and that comes back to the idea of censorship. And and what we talk about openly with each other and how society deals with bad things that go on. Now, that sounds like a great story. 
that sounds like something I would definitely love to uh, watch. Lizzie Monk writes Love Siri. Yeah, I love Siri too, except when she chimes in when she's not being spoken to. She does it a lot during the middle of my show. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Game for Kitty. Say, hey, say, uh, sorry. He's saying, oh, I saw you yesterday. Uh, up at all night. Okay. Christian is waving at us. Always is saying nice on Instagram. Game for Kitties is also waving. So anyway, this movie, Censor, it's, it's being... Uh, previewed at the film festival uh, I would like to see this one I guess we gotta wait for this one to be released because it sounds fascinating and for you guys out there that never experienced the 80s uh, yeah the fashion is back today but thank god everything else is not <laughs> alright let's go to some Walking Dead stuff Fear the Walking Dead T 10 things that make no sense about Morgan I mean, I can think of a lot more than 10. The guy is complicated. And Screen Rant decides to write an article because Morgan is a complicated character who has put up with a lot of crap. And uh, so let's see the stuff that they pick out. Khaleesi writes, I was going to a lot of concerts in the 80s. Lizzie Monk says, I love the 80s. I went to a lot of concerts in the 80s, and it's all thanks to my big brother, who would take me with him. I saw Billy Idol, like in 1984, at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, and I was 10. 1984, I was 10. And what a kick-ass show. And I'm just so lucky to say that I have seen Billy Idol perform live. And it was just an, it was an experience. Richelle G writes, that's awesome on YouTube. Khaleesi also writes, awesome. It, it was awesome. I can't describe it. Uh, even though we were in the nosebleed seats, didn't matter. Uh, didn't matter. It was such a kick-ass show. Anyway, back to Morgan. Let me see the time. Morgan is a fan-favorite character from the original Walking Dead series, but he's been involved in quite a few situations which made no sense. Of course, because everything has to make sense in the post-apocalyptic world. Morgan was a complex character, and he continued as such when he crossed over to the spin-off Fear, regardless of whether viewers love him or find him annoying, and I have yet to talk to a viewer who finds him annoying, there's no denying that he has layers and has often served as the moral center of the group. Now, that I will argue. There is a good argument to put up calling Morgan the moral center of the group. Yeah, when he switched to fear and he was, what we're going to do is we're going to save people through seasons four and five. Yeah, you can, that was him. But we have seen Morgan where he was most definitely not a moral compass, a moral center of anything that is resembling sanity. So, anyway, that said, there are a lot of things about Morgan that really don't add up. From the moment he was the first human face Rick saw after awakening from a coma to his resurrection as a fierce, 
fighter in Fear the Walking Dead Season 6, Morgan had his ups and downs. All right, let's check out this list. Number 10, not shooting his zombified wife. All right, come on. Give the guy a break, all right? The world just fell apart around you. Was it a mistake in hindsight? Yes. Did it lead to the death of his son? Yes. But we're talking with hindsight, you know? He didn't know that. And he found it a hard time, A, accepting that the dead are being resurrected and eating the living, and his wife is one of them. So I think we can cut him a little bit of slack about not killing and putting down his wife. Number nine, in and out of mental illness. And we have discussed this topic to death. Mental illness is serious, and the fact that Morgan seems to move seamlessly in and out of episodes of serial mental illness doesn't make sense, especially when he doesn't have any access to medication. Does he just experience mental breakdowns every now and then, brought on by the situation and the circumstances, all the while being able to simply shake it, shake them off? Or is he truly mentally ill? How, how many of you guys out there think that Morgan is mentally ill? That would mean he was mentally ill before the apocalypse. I don't think Morgan is mentally ill. He is just like any of the other survivors, and they all deal with what's going on around them differently. Uh, and it wasn't until he met Eastman, who taught him Aikido and brought him out of his mad phase that we were first introduced to in the episode Clear in Season 3, where he's just batshit crazy. It took Eastman and the time that he spent, which was significant, with Eastman to bring him out of it and teach him how to, when he gets into a state of rage or mentally imbalanced, how to bring himself back. So he was fine. He went up. He met up with Rick. And we saw for the majority of season seven, he was absolutely against fighting the saviors but a series of events the killing of benjamin uh he couldn't he broke he broke again and killer morgan came back which to be honest that's exactly who rick and the group needed they needed killer morgan at that time and when the savior war was over he went and isolated himself in the uh junkyard he didn't want to be around people uh he just finally fled and that's where we see him today on fear the walking dead number eight constant mor morality complex the various times when morgan was going through his crisis of conscience didn't make much sense he believed that every life was precious and that killing wasn't necessary yet he had already seen the brutality of the world and what was necessary to survive in it. He continued to do things to put his own life at risk, as well as the lives of others in the name of saving every human. Yet, if every life was precious, why wasn't he as, as concerned with protecting the lives of those closest to him 
versus the lives of troubled strangers he thought he could save. You know, that leaves me a little bit confused. Can they give us an example of exactly what they're talking about? Because, you know, when we have seen so much of Morgan, having an actual example would help clarify what they're talking about. How he has survived for so long. Well, A, it's a TV show, all right? So he gets to go on as long as the writers want him to go on. And B, uh, he's he's a survivor, you know? Uh, I would put him on an equal plane with Rick Grimes when it comes to being survivors. And uh, he's got luck on his side a couple of times as well. So I don't think that's really big that big of a mystery. Number six, joining a new group. Morgan left Rick's group on The Walking Dead because he felt being a part of their fight was changing him and turning him into the type of person he did not want to be. So he set out on his own and walked miles and miles. That's an understatement. He walked from Virginia all the way down to Texas. Well, Louisiana at first. Then, as soon as he arrived on Fear of the Walking Dead, he joined another group. No, no, that's not accurate. He wanted no part of them. When he first came across John Dory, uh, John was asking him to stick around. Uh, John was alone for so long, looking for June. He was looking just for somebody to talk to. Morgan wanted no part of it. And then even when he met Alicia, Al, and all the rest of them, he was still dead set. It wasn't until the end of the season, season four, that he finally cozied up to them and he realized leaving Virginia was a mistake. Not Virginia the person, Virginia the Alexandria. Leaving Alexandria was a mistake that he was going to take them all back. And of course, that never happened. So, you know, he did not just leave Rick's group, go to Louisiana, and automatically join a new group. Uh, Colette writes, he tried his hardest to be on his own. Absolutely. And everybody he met fought him every step of the way. Uh, number five, inability to share feelings with grace. That's true. And as we find out uh, in this current season and a little bit in the last season... Uh, his dead wife is a big reason he feels like he might be betraying her. That is what Morgan has pretty much conveyed as why he's having such a hard time conveying to Grace how he really feels about her. Morgan loved his wife dearly, but a good decade has passed since she died. The world has effectively come to an end, there were a few survivors and everyone had to cherish every moment. Morgan clearly has feelings for Grace, yet he could not express them and seemingly felt guilty over it. And he does. He feels guilty as he's still betraying his wife. The big driving factor to Morgan's character is his wife, who we never met as the living person on the show. Uh, we only see her as a walker. Uh, but she is the biggest driving force. And then Dwayne 
would be the second biggest driving force. Uh, they have been gone for a long time from his life, but they affect every decision that he makes and has made on both shows since the beginning. Uh, let's see, often leads the group into trouble. Oh, well, he doesn't do that on purpose. Come on, you know, you make a decision. How many times have we seen Rick make a decision that didn't quite pan out the way he wanted to? So that's not his fault. Number three, there has to be a better way. That's a famous quote from Morgan. If fans had a nickel for every time Morgan uttered these words, they would probably be able to buy a new car by now. He became almost preachy at one point, declaring this line in response to everything. He would stop someone from killing someone else and say it, or discuss a strategy for helping others by using this exact same line. While Morgan always had good intentions, he wasn't able to articulate them without using the same tired phrases over and over again. I agree with that. I kind of got sick of him saying this. There has to be a better way. Uh, I got sick of a line from Rick Grimes that we heard so much over the years on his time on The Walking Dead. You guys know which line I'm talking about? Uh, Rick would always say after he realized that a decision he made, whether it's him talking to Maggie after realizing that, you know, he has to fight the saviors, he's like, I get it now. I understand. That, after a while, just started to bug the shit out of me. All right? Because he was repeating it, you know? And he repeated it so many times that's a real big indicator as to how many bad decisions Rick Grimes made on The Walking Dead. I get it now. Good night, Lizzie. Thank you for joining us. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you're going to pin that on Morgan, you got to pin, you know, the I get it now, I understand now on Rick Grimes. Uh, Lindsay writes, it would be cool to see a backstory for Morgan with his wife before she died. That would be cool. I think they just lived a regular, you know, boring existence. Uh, I don't think there was anything special to them. They loved each other. That's obvious. They were a couple that was married for a very long time. Obviously, he loved her very much, and I have no doubt that she loved him. Uh, just by the effect that her death had on him. Number two, the no-kill policy. And that frustrated all of us, especially in season seven of The Walking Dead. His refusal to kill until he finally snapped and killed Richard uh, in front of Gavin. Uh, up until that point, it was getting really annoying that he would not engage in a fight. Uh, and we had Jason Warner Smith who played Gavin on this show. And I specifically asked him that question about Morgan. Did he kill, uh, Richard in front of Gavin to a, uh, show that the kingdom was still on the savior side or B did Morgan just absolutely snap and kill him? 
And I believe Jason's answer was it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both that played into him taking out Richard uh, so violently, you know. And uh, you got to remember, Richard was the first person that Morgan killed, a human that he killed in a long time, okay? So he had kept his promise to Eastman until Eastman. He hadn't killed anyone. Uh, you know, remember when the wolves attacked Alexandria, uh, he took Owen prisoner instead of killing him. That led to a big flare-up between him and Carol. Anyway, number one, he survived. After getting shot by Virginia and left for dead, a horde of walkers just a few feet from him, how on earth did Morgan survive? And we still do not know who patched him up. Now, yesterday, uh, Fear the Walking Dead officially announced uh, the second half of season six, the premiere date. I believe it's April 8th or something like that, with a very cool little teaser graphic. Uh, and, uh, you know, Michael Satrazimus, who's a director and executive producer on Fear the Walking Dead, says... Uh, even told me personally he's like if you like the first half get ready the second half is going to be even better and the big question is are we going to find out who patched morgan up and i know there are a lot of people out there who think it's madison i initially uh thought it was sherry it wasn't sherry uh so there is a mystery person out there and this mystery person saved morgan's life so, is it Madison? We don't know. Uh, but I'm 50-50, you know? Lisa, it's going to be April 11th, which is Lisa's birthday. All right, April 11th is when the second half of season six, Fear the Walking Dead, is going to premiere. And that teaser graphic that they put up is really good. It's just a picture, but it's really, really freaking good. Uh, anyway, they're asking how did he survive being shot. We all know if it wasn't for this mysterious person, he would not have survived at all. Uh, this person still remains a mystery. It hasn't been any of the groups or the characters that we have met so far in Season 6 of Fear the Walking Dead. So this mystery savior is still a mystery. And hopefully we are going to get an answer fairly soon after the second half of season six begins or we might have to wait and it might be just like a big cliffhanger at the season finale that we get of season six don't know either way it's going to be really cool welcome to chandy on instagram rumsky 99 is also with us carla's just joined us welcome to you guys on instagram so anyway Today we are going to be talking about horror cliches. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, the uh, turning around, the look, the biggest one, you know, opening up the medicine cabinet in the bathroom, closing it and seeing someone in the mirror. They are becoming played out, okay, because they have been used so often, so many times. And then in a separate category... You have predictable writing. And predictable writing is not exclusive just in the horror industry. It's for everything. 
where you're watching a TV show or a movie and you're listening to the dialogue and you can predict exactly what the next line is going to be. Uh, that's just unimaginative. And you know what? In real life, people don't talk that way anyways. <laughs> so, but this is different. This is horror cliches. It involves, you know, from the beginning of, from the dawn of time, since horror movies were seen on the screen, we see uh, characters making decisions that are absolutely stupid, leads to them getting killed, and so on. Want to welcome Giuseppe, who's just joined us on YouTube. Uh, welcome, Giuseppe. Thank you for joining us. So, again, Watch Mojo had put together a great video on, like, the top 10 horror cliches that are out there and how so many fans are just really annoyed with them at this stage of the game and are more than happy to see them stop and just see them go away and become a little bit more imaginative. There are other ways to produce jump scares. So let's just go ahead and watch this video and uh, let me know what you guys think. All right. I'm here, they're gone for good. Hey everyone, I'm Rebecca and welcome to Watch Mojo. Today we're counting down our picks for the top 20 horror movie cliches. Oh, like by the way, this is 20 bar. minutes long, oh, so we're gonna be scanning really through accurate. it. Gotta knock off a couple more to get that title. World's worst place to get a flat, huh? This is right, we should split up. Maybe we can cover more ground that way. For this list, we're looking at the most widespread horror movie tropes that characters never seem to learn from. What's your favorite or least favorite horror movie cliche? Be sure to let us know in the comments. All right, let's get to it. Number 20, explaining away the cell phone. Old slasher movies had it easy because characters weren't walking around with phones and lines to the outside world in their pockets. Rob? Hey, Rob? No. Rob? My battery's dead. Modern screenwriters have it a bit tougher, and stories are finding a variety of ways to hand wave away the cell phone problem. Have you tried maybe calling 911, see if somebody else can get yeah, there? I tried. Okay, well, I mean, what about police? Fire department? I couldn't get through. Oh, it seems a little. All right, the, the, let's see the next one. Leave, motherfucker. No. The heart, the cell phone issue. Oh. Someone in the back seat. This is from 1408. The worst is when a bathroom or cabinet is slightly ajar. You just know that someone's going to be standing there when the character closes it. Didn't I just say that? You're not real. Number 18. No guns. In the first episode of Stranger Things, a terrified Will immediately runs to the shed and loads up a rifle to defend himself from the monster. <laughs> Scenes like this are unbelievably rare in movies. Many people own guns, whether for hunting, hobby reasons, or personal protection. So why are guns so rare in horror movies? Now, let's go to the top Swing of the list. Let's, let's fast forward. 20's a bit much. This trope isn't seen as often as the others, but it's still around and has popped up in various horror movies throughout the decades. Oh, now, oh, take it easy. Oh, 
In the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Sally is seemingly saved by the gas station proprietor, only to be kidnapped and taken to Leatherface. I hope you're not too uncomfortable down there. Where the good guy turns out to be the bad guy. Where your savior is actually the bad guy. John Cusack's Mike escapes the room and returns to normal life, only to realize that this is just another sadistic machination of the room. The point is, Escape never comes to the main character halfway this through the This is the director's if ending. If it does, it is most certainly Sorry, not the director. This is a theatrical Number 11, ending. Inept Authorities. It's very rare for horror movie authorities to be good at their jobs. You see what's going on in the background there? In many cases, the police aren't even informed of the movie's events, usually because of the dead cell phone battery, no signal nonsense. Looks like we've got a serial killer on our hands. Well, serial killer's not really accurate. Gotta knock off a couple more to get that title. And even if they are informed, they typically act in a generally inept and helpless manner, usually by not taking the protagonist seriously, being incompetent and unprofessional, or being knocked off in 10 seconds. And then, even if they are relatively competent, they usually show up far too late and barge into the site of a massacre. Get Out subverts this wonderfully through the character of Rod. I mean, I told you not to go in that house. Number 10, generic ghost activity. Why do movie ghosts always resort to the same bag of tricks? Who's ever down there, I'm gonna lock you in now. Some movies try to spin the old ghost yarn in unique and imaginative ways, but most are unfortunately content with reusing the same scares we've seen thousands of times. Ghosts will always make the old floorboards creak, slowly open or slam doors, make the lights flicker, and if they're particularly powerful, throw household objects around. See, that's a cliche I can deal with. I like that. It, it makes it scary. If they want to be seen, they typically stand a distance away from the character and stare at them, oh, usually the from an upstairs window, or scream in the window. directly oh in their God, face for some reason. Oh my that been killed? That's been used to death. Pardon the pun. Is there a ghost handbook they're all forced to follow or something? Number 9. Hiding in Dumb Places we understand that characters are scared and panicking when confronted with a remorseless boogeyman, but what's with the constant hiding under beds and in closets or lockers? You know what's my biggest gripe? And I just thought of this. My biggest gripe in horror movies is when the victim actually gets the upper hand on the perpetrator and they have stabbed him, uh, shot him in the chest or the arm, and they drop their weapon and walk away. I'm like, what the... What are you doing? I would, whether it's bashing him over the head or stabbing him or shooting him, I would unload onto the guy's head or girl's head, doesn't matter. If I stabbed him, I would stab him at least a minimum of 60 times. Uh, I would make sure that they are damn good and dead. What annoys me is them just taking one shot or stabbing them once, the guy or girl is down, and they walk away. They just walk away, drop the weapon, only for that bad person to show up a few moments later because they didn't do their job properly. That really pisses me off, and that always gets me screaming at the screen. 
often without a weapon, no less. It is a horrible strategy, and it mostly never ends well. When confronted with stress, the body acts with the fight-or-flight response. And in this case, characters should listen to their bodies. Start running and do not stop. Run outside and scream bloody murder if you can. The absolute last thing you should be doing is running upstairs and hiding in a small enclosed closet with one exit. Number 8. The Middle of Nowhere There's a reason- Alright. Uh, going into the- that's why I don't go into the woods. We're running out of time, so I- uh, It seems like jump scares will never go away. Oh. Now, there are tasteful and intelligent ways to utilize jump scares. But most are just a cheap way to startle the audience rather than scare them. I can still hear that voice. What? Jump scares come in a wide variety, almost always accompanied by paused music and that annoying duh sound effect. Some movies even utilize the old false scare trick, which almost always involves a cat. And some even utilize the false scare actual scare trick, which involves a character calming down after seeing the cat, then immediately being attacked by the killer slash monster slash ghost who was there all along. Oh, you want to play psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? And this attack inevitably comes in the form of a jump scare there's really no escaping them. Number 6. Nothing ever works. We don't oh, know yeah. if everyone buys cheap crap or- Yeah, cheap crap, that's one way to put it. Movies are quite outlandish by their very nature. No one believes the protagonist. Especially ones the supernatural. This is why it makes a certain kind of sense that unimportant characters never believe the protagonist so-called insane ramblings. But all I know is, they already got two brothers we know, and it could be a whole- Ain't that the truth. Splitting up, they always do, owing to one character taking a wrong turn, falling down a hole, or any other contrivance meant to separate the characters. Stan! Stanley! Oh yeah, I mean- And once they've been separated, you just know one of them is gonna die. Honestly, guys, if you're in a situation, anything similar to what we're seeing now, who would be like, let's split up? I'm like, hell no, we ain't splitting up. Uh-uh, nuh-uh, that shit ain't happening. But it happens all the time. Let's split up. Number three, slashers never say die. It's always very refreshing when a movie slasher actually dies. More often than not, they're depicted as inhuman, literally unstoppable monsters. Michael Myers is the boogeyman. This trope is especially bad for franchises like Friday the 13th, Halloween, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, although it certainly is not exclusive to those movies. God, that sense chills up my spine. There's simply no tension in slashers like that. We know the main protagonist will survive, and we know the villain isn't gonna die. This is Friday the 13th, part six, the beginning. This trope is especially annoying when the portrayed the killer as being dead, only to reveal right before the credits that they are actually alive. Gotta get that easy sequel money. 
Number two, creepy kids. Can I see my mommy? No, Samara, not until we understand what's wrong with you. There are three main roles for children in horror movies. Helpless victims the protagonist must protect, ghosts, and kids who are somehow connected to the conspiracy and do creepy things. We Kid posted a great article on those shining the shining on the, the grudge. Side that talk check it out. They're typically accompanied by quiet, whispery voices. And the conspiracy kid has been seen in the likes of The Omen and The Ring. Stop. Oh, almost out of time. I just want to see. Is in the movie. They are going to be used in a creepy capacity. Still on creepy kids. Anyway, we've got. So that was it. Creepy Kids is number one. Sometimes the helpless victims even turn into creepy kids, like the zombies in Wreck and Night of the Living Dead, or Reagan in The Exorcist. Chances are, if a child is in the movie, they are going to be used in a creepy. Speaking of Night of the Living Dead, it's probably the only movie where we see a zombie actually pick up a weapon in that creepy kid and use the weapon to kill their victim as opposed to eat them. That was tried once and George Romero never did it again. So that's definitely something to think about, okay? Wonder, have you guys ever realized that? That that girl who comes back to life kills her mother with a spade, does not eat her, stabs her repeatedly with a spade. So anyway, that is the end of our show tonight. We are out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. Please visit our website, deadtalklive.com. Today is Thursday. I'll be back on the air again tomorrow night, same time. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Check us out on YouTube and all of the, our other social media networks. Just look us up under the name Dead Talk Live. Stay safe if you're on YouTube right now. Please subscribe. Hit the thumbs up button on this broadcast. You guys are awesome. I love you. I love spending this time with you. And until tomorrow night, guys, stay safe and always stay walking. Good night.